Hey friends, you're listening to Peel Matters on News Talk Saga 960. Today's conversation is brought to you from the Lessey Revolution, a food and climate justice podcast. I'm your co-host Rav. And I'm your co-host Rahul. And we are coming to you from Treaty 13 land, the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, and Mississaugas of the Credit. We recognize the many nations of Indigenous people who currently live on this land, have spent time here, and ancestors who have hunted and gathered on this land. We also acknowledge the many people of African descent who are not settlers, but whose ancestors were forcibly displaced and made to work on these lands. We remain committed to both Indigenous sovereignty and Black liberation by engaging in allyship work and believe both are key aspects of our food systems, the environmental movement, and our democracy. So today, we are doing the last installment of our elections mini-series. I hope you've tuned in to the previous two episodes so far. For this past month, we've been talking to amazing organizations and local groups. This includes Apathy is Boring, 350 Canada, Green Pack, and Engage Peel. We talked about the election, climate change, and of course, civic engagement. We encourage you to go to your favorite podcast listening platform, search up the Lussie Revolution podcast, and give our election mini-series a listen or share it with someone that you know. Yes, I've really been enjoying all these conversations that we have been so lucky to have during this snap election period. And I'm really looking forward today to today's conversation um, because we're actually going to be talking directly to some candidates from Mississauga to get their thoughts on climate change, food, and civic uh, youth engagement. And I think it's going to wrap everything up very, very nicely. Um, And so many people came together to help make this episode possible. So I just want to give everyone a quick shout out. Um, And Rahul, I first want to give a shout out to us. I don't shout out. (laughs) I don't think we, I think we need to acknowledge the hard work that we always put into this podcast um, more often. So just like every other, every other, other episode, uh, Raha and I put a lot of work into this. Um, but this episode felt a little bit more tricky because there was just so much to do in so little time during the snap election. So it was difficult to secure candidates, but we did get a few and I'm really, really proud of us for that. Um, so I think we can give ourselves a little pat on the back for that. Um, Second, I want to thank the Peel Youth Food Circle. Um, They have been an amazing support in the background, helping with emails and the coordination of all of this. Uh, You can check them out on Instagram at at Peel Youth Food Circle. Um, I will also link it in the notes in case I I think I may have mispronounced it um, to see the work that they do and how you can get involved. And lastly, I want to thank Food Secure Canada. Uh, This episode is actually part of their Eat, Think, Vote campaign, uh, which you can learn more about at eatthinkvote.ca. And they were really great at providing insight on the larger picture um, and also providing guidance on how to reach out to candidates and how to engage with them. Again, a huge thanks to everyone who came together to help make this happen. Um, especially to Rav here, uh, our amazing co-host. Like Rav had mentioned, uh, we were able to secure two candidates for today, the Green Party and the NDP. The Liberal and Conservative candidates we reached out to were already booked for other engagements during this time, but they do send their warm wishes. 
And we'll be listening to this later on to make sure they understand what issues matter to us. Yep, I'll be sending the podcast and some notes over to them afterwards. Let's get into our next interview. I am here with Mark Davidson. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about the work that you do um, in the community. So I wanted to first give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to everyone so we can get to know you. Sure. Um, Well, I I have two daughters, um, 23 and 17. Actually, sorry, 24 and 17. Um, And uh, I'm working on a number of academic projects. In the past, I have published academic papers on uh, personal debt um, and on uh, capital punishment and the, the symbolic role of punishment in society as a, as a kind of icon of the relationship between the state and citizens. Um, and I'm working on a few books, which I've been working on for a while. Uh, one is on um, the, uh, the, the harmful acts of corporate actors uh, with an examination, not on financial crimes, but on things like corporate pollution, workplace injury and death, um, sort of the, uh, you know, the more tangible kinds of harms. Um, I'm also working on some books that examine the relationship between different streams of thought um, and specifically uh, along some of the the early works of um, certain philosophers. Um, I'm also working on another project which coincides with one of the um, institutions I'm trying to set up at Laurier, which I call the Shunyata Center. Um, but I'm I'm working on this. This is about um, ways to respond to uh, our new knowledge around forms of xenophobia and racism and oppression, and and it's a sort of critical response to the dominant form of responses that have happened so far um, with a view to creating more connection and more solidarity among marginalized groups. So they're not working against each other, but they're working together. And and I've I've spoken to you about about this a little bit in terms of bringing um, activists and, and, you know, people who are aware of what's going on with the planet and with the people, bringing them together. Sounds like you have some really interesting projects on the go. Thank you for introducing yourself to me and our listeners. Uh, What party are you representing and which riding are you located in? Right, so I'm running for the Greens and I'm running in Mississauga Malton. Um, I, I live in Etobicoke but uh, they already had a candidate for, for here. So they asked me if I would run in Malton and, and I said, yes, because I, I know that Malton is a very diverse community and that there are a lot of South Asians and, um, and um, you know, people from, you know, roots in the Caribbean, African Canadians. Um, and I'm, I'm really drawn to those communities. My wife is South Asian and um, she was born in Africa, culturally Indian. Um, and I feel, I feel really at home in those communities. Um, 
my my wife is always telling me you're brown you're more brown on the inside than I am. <laughs> I um but uh yeah I I feel really uh really honored to be able to connect with the people that I have connected and and that includes you I mean you know what you're doing with your farm and sort of personal and political implications of your work is, uh, you know, they're, they're really special, you know, and, you know, having, having seen 54 years of the world, you know, I, I look at something like what you're doing and, and what the others that I've met are doing. And it's just, it's really inspiring. And I think, I think that has to do with, you know, partly your history and your culture, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Malton is such a great, great uh, community in Mississauga. And I'm really happy that you are um, getting a chance to experience it and be part of that community. And I definitely appreciate um, the kind words about my work. It's not um, mm. always appreciated. So it's really nice, especially when a community leader and political leader recognizes uh, not only my work, but just it, it, I definitely get the feeling that you value food and farmers, um, which mm. kind of leads into nicely into this first thing that I wanted to talk about, which was food. Um, so Canada has ratified the UN International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which mm. basically means that our government has the legal duty to guarantee its citizens with um, the right to adequate food, but we've seen um, food insecurity in our community was on the rise before COVID and during COVID, the, during the pandemic, it's only gotten worse. Um, so if elected, um, what will your party work on to ensure food security and food sovereignty for all? Um, and I specifically want to point to um, communities and individuals who live under oppressive systems such as Indigenous, Black, newcomer, lower income, disabled communities, and others? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a great question. Um, first, let me respond to the part about the, uh, the covenant on economic and, and social rights. Um, so international covenants are very difficult to enforce. Um, they have a kind of um, moral, moral kind of persuasion, uh, you know, moral power in terms of, you know, this is what Canada as a country has, is aspiring to. But in terms of enforcement, there aren't really penalties, there aren't, uh, you know, consequences for failing to live up to that. And Canada has actually failed in a number of ways to live up to those obligations. Um, so uh, I would say the first thing uh, to look at if you want to connect with, the, with the, the international legal obligations that Canada has towards food, I would say is to look at um, uh, every year ECOSOC, which is the, um, the committee that uh, examines uh, a country's um, ability or, or willingness to fulfill its promises under a certain treaty or covenant. In this case, it's the economic and social um, 
committee of the UN or something like that. Um, I would start with looking at some of their reviews of Canada. I, I can't cite them off the top of my head because I haven't looked at them, but I would certainly, you know, it's, it's definitely worth looking at those to get a really good concrete sense of the extent to which um, Canada is failing to live up to that. Now, in a liberal democratic society, rights are, rights are useful, but they're also partial in terms of how they're interpreted and what they can be used for uh, to accomplish certain uh, redistributive or distributed forms of justice. Um, normally, when we think about rights, we think about rights in terms of the government does not have the power or should not have the power to interfere with our ability to access a certain kind of resource, right? So we have in the Charter of Rights, which is also difficult to enforce, but far more enforceable than the economic and social covenant. Um, but those rights have all been interpreted in, in, in the negative sense, in the sense of you have a right to, to food in the international uh, plane. You have the right to food. And that means we're going to interpret that as um, the government can't do anything to take your food away. Now, a different understanding of rights would be a positive understanding of rights. So in that sense, um, it would be you have the right to something like health care, which is not in the charter, by the way, um, but it is in the um, it's my dog shaking in case you heard that. It is in the in the ECOSOC. Um, but you do have the right to health care, publicly funded health care. Um, damn, I forgot what I was saying. I got distracted by my dog. Uh, okay, so in the positive, so rights in the positive sense would create an obligation on the government to provide that service. Okay. Um, that's not how rights are interpreted in the courts, in Canadian courts. They're interpreted in the negative way. So using the rights language to, to achieve redistribution or distribution of resources is difficult in a liberal democracy. And what I would say is that it's a necessary part of the discussion because it's a, it's a powerful symbolic message to say that you have the right to something. But I would also say that if you want to have rights fulfilled, those rights have to be explicitly connected to the needs that they protect, the needs that they honor, right? That has to be part of the discussion. So you have the right to food, for example, because you need to eat. It is a basic human need that we all have to eat, that we all have to eat, and we have to eat good food, right? Um, and then, so you've got a more fulsome understanding of why that right is there. And you also have 
a way of emotionally connecting to the fact that some people don't have enough to eat and that some people do not have access to healthy food, right? So you've got, on the one hand, you've got your rights violation, but on the other hand, you've got this very visceral awareness through a, a public education, which is something that I very much support around these issues. Um, but you've got this, this visceral kind of connection to the fact that, hey, some people do not have enough to eat in our country. That's abhorrent. That is absolutely unacceptable. And that's where I think it connects to, um, you know, a lot of the equity seeking groups that you're talking about, because they tend to be overrepresented in groups that lack resources. Um, and one of the reasons I suspect that that's the case is because we do live in a society, um, I know a lot of people use the term systemic racism. Um, I'm wary of that term, but I certainly uh, uh, acknowledge that it refers to something very real. I don't know what language I'd use to describe what it refers to, but that's sort of beside the point. Um, but one of the problems with the kind of xenophobia that exists in Canada, the fear of difference, is that it leads to a dehumanization of people who are different than ourselves. And when that dehumanization occurs, it's very easy to discount the suffering of those individuals. It becomes more acceptable to accept the fact that some people don't have enough to eat when they've been dehumanized through whatever kind of, you can call it systemic racism, you can call it xenophobia, whatever. Um, I think it's like just the fear of other, which is a, an integral part of the kind of economic and social system that we live in. Um, so bringing in, uh, adding a, a need, a, a discussion of human needs, basic human needs can rehumanize marginalized people so that we're talking about, yeah, I'm white and that family is black and they don't have enough to eat and they experience hunger in the same way that I do. And that needs to be explicit. I, I remember after George Floyd was murdered, I wrote this piece and um, I said in it that, you know, George Floyd was killed because he was black. But his death is horrible because he's first a human being. And as a white person, as a white person, that humanity is something we all share, right? I'm not at risk of the kinds of uh, treatment by the police that George Floyd was obviously subject to, right? Because of my skin color and, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, benefits and statuses that I have. But I can certainly relate in, in, you know, using my mind to the experience of, you know, the idea of someone putting their knee on my neck and suffocating me. And I think that's why that video and that, that crime had the impact that it did, because we all watched it and thought, it's no longer an abstract, you know, police violence. 
and is no longer an abstract problem. You can actually see it as human beings affecting other human beings. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a long answer to your question about international obligations. But the reality is that all of these issues have multiple layers to them. And we need to talk about those layers because you have law and then you have the enforcement and application of law. And often those two things are very different. Law in the books and law in the streets are very different. And the reason for those differences have to do with social phenomena, social, um, let's call them biases or perceptions that filter our understanding of law. And unless we talk about those filters, the law is, the law does not live up to its potential. And I'm a great believer in law. I'm absolutely committed to the rule of law as a principle of human existence. I also recognize that the rule of law is often undermined and distorted by these sorts of xenophobic filters that we that we often carry with us. So, yeah, <laughs> long answer. No, hey, you ask an academic, that's what you get, right? I know, I can definitely tell you're a professor, but it was really great to have some clarifications around what the benefits are, but also some of the restrictions and challenges in yeah. terms of the covenant and what that actually means for the role and accountability that the government has in ensuring we are working towards food security and food sovereignty. And I definitely yeah. appreciate you reminding us that these topics are very layered um, and it's really important to take the time to go through those layers and understand the complexity behind these uh, topics and issues that we're talking about. Yeah. So climate change, I want to kind of shift um, from food to climate change now, because that's been a really big topic, um, not just during this election, but the past few years. Uh, climate change Climate change is one of the largest crises, um, sorry, crises that our, our world is facing. Um, and I really believe that we all... Um, we need all of our political and community leaders to come together and work together regardless of their party, their background, their beliefs, etc. because it's really that our survival um, that is at risk. Um, so what is what are your, what are your thoughts on climate change, um, whether you're elected or not? What climate action um, are you hoping to take on in, in this position that you have? Right. I always thought climate change was a hoax. It's interesting to hear that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, we still we still have to deal with denialism. We still have to deal with it. Uh, so that's a really big question. I think that you know, if, to put it simply, if we were on the Titanic, we have a warning, okay, and the captain has come over the sound system and said, everyone on the boat, listen to me. We're about to strike an iceberg. And if we strike that iceberg, the boat's gonna sink and we're all gonna die. So whatever you're doing, whatever resources you have at your disposal, we need you to stop whatever that is, whatever you have, and we need to put everything we've got as a community, the entire community, into steering our boat away from the, 
from the iceberg. That's how I think about climate change. We're getting to the very close to the point, the science tells us, of not being able to stop the effects. We will get to a point where the the, the processes that are that are contributing to, to climate change will not be reversible and they will end up um, running out of control. And the kind of effects of that will be so catastrophic, it's on the level of a nuclear holocaust in terms of the impact. Now, one of the problems is that a nuclear holocaust is very easy to think about. It's very explicit. Wow, someone's going to drop a bomb on me and it's going to fry my flesh, right? Climate change. Okay, so, you know, the icebergs are melting and it's going to go up by 1.5 degrees. I care about that, really? Um, so I think people don't realize um, what it means for their lives right now. Uh, I think that um, the Greens could actually win on economic arguments alone because the costs of dealing with climate change and reversing it right now are a fraction of the costs that we're going to, the resources that we're going to have to devote to dealing with it, even seven years from now, you know, or 10 years from now, it's, it's gonna go up exponentially. Now we will have a choice because climate change, if it continues the way it is, we will have a choice. We either um, turn our backs on the suffering of those people hardest hit by climate change and we just ignore it and we just protect ourselves or we try to help everyone around the world. Um, I'm not sure we'll make the latter decision. That scares me. And the consequences of that are horrific. And we're talking about um, the, the breakdown of political and economic institutions and the uh, kind of, I, I don't have the words to describe what that would look like in terms of totalitarianism and xenophobia and um, the use of force internationally and, and locally. Um, now, one of the things I like about the Greens is that they put the climate question first and all the political questions come after the climate question. So yes, they talk about um, you know, life with dignity, security for seniors, um, you know, education, infrastructure, healthcare, minimum living wages, all this sort of stuff. Yes, they have that in their platform, but they also make the connection to those issues and climate, between those issues and climate change. And they start with the question of, okay, given that our ship is about to hit the, um, the iceberg, how do these issues, well, how can we address these issues in a way, sorry, that's, that's Moses, that's my dog, come here, what's going on? Sorry, Ralph, <laughs> I'm really hungry, that's my stomach going, <laughs> come here, what's the matter? It's okay, it's okay. 
Good boy. Um, <laughs> he's so cute. Do you want to see him? Oh, now he's shy. It's okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, the reason I decided to run with the greens is because they put this the question first. Um, in terms of addressing climate change, I think we all know, and this is not the thing to say to get elected, and I realize that, we all know the party's over, okay? There's a concept in economics called externalities. And it's when the cost of your production is uh, removed from the cost of the item. Now, we've, that's our economy. We externalized the costs of our economic activities to the point now we can't, where we can't ignore them anymore. And our economy cannot function in the way that it does if we include those external costs because they would increase the cost of production so much that, it, that this kind of economy would be unsustainable. So, you know, I know a big issue is housing. Let's take housing for example, okay? Um, when, a, when a small house goes up for sale, uh, a young family will be bidding on it against a developer. The developer will come in outbid the young family and tear down the house. Um, they usually sink about, you know, between 700 and a million, 700,000 and a million dollars into it. And they throw away the house. They, uh, it's tragic to see these perfectly functional, beautiful, solid post-war homes being torn down. Now the environmental cost of that kind of housing quote unquote strategy is huge, but it's externalized. And the con I, don't, I don't know what the data is on this because I, I asked um, one of the people high up in the Mississauga uh, uh, municipal government about this and they said they have no data on it. But um, those, those environmental costs are then shifted outside the cost of the home. And when, as climate change, uh, increases the costs of medical bills that the public has to pay keep going up to deal with the effects of climate change. And it's astronomical. It's in the like multiple billions of dollars a year to treat the health effects of climate change. The homeowner isn't paying for that, right? Sure, they pay fees to throw it away, but compared to the, the climate impact of that, that kind of action, those fees are, are insignificant. Um, so if you included the cost of the environmental cost of that kind of destruction into housing, housing would be even more unaffordable than it is. So that model, we need, we need to change that model. I mean, I, I see so many buildings in Etobicoke and Mississauga the perfectly functional office buildings and they're being torn down. Why, why is that happening? It's, you know, if there's a structural reason and it's, and you know, the building is beyond repair, fine. But if not, we shouldn't be tearing these structures down.
Because even the cost, the environmental cost of construction itself is huge. Concrete is a huge, the production of concrete is a huge contributor to global warming. Why are we tearing concrete structures down and building them back up? It's, it's insanity. Stop the insanity! <laughs> yeah, I love that the analogy of the iceberg and Titanic was really helpful. And it, it almost helps me visualize what's going on, which is, um, yeah, really helpful when we're talking about something like climate change, where we don't necessarily see it every day in front of our, um, you know, in front of our eyes. And you talked about the economics of climate change. And that's really, really interesting. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about the economics of climate change, um, let us know and we can definitely explore that topic a bit more in the future. Um, but Mark, it's really nice to hear that um, climate is really at the forefront of conversations that the Green Party is having. And there is not only that, but it, it sounds like there's conversations about the intersectionality and how climate change intersects with all these different topics and issues that our community is facing. That's, um, yeah, really nice to hear that. Um, the last kind of like, Oh, can I, can I give one specific, um, point? Um, I was reading a report by the Canadian insurance council. Um, and they said that within the next, uh, I think it's 10 to 30 years, roughly home insurance will be a luxury because it will be so expensive because of the climate emergencies. And the insurance industry is saying we need to address climate change because they can't afford the, the costs of it, right? Um, I got a call from my insurance broker um, who said, you know, I hope you're sitting down, Mark, because your home insurance is going up by 50% this year. It's the highest and it's all because of climate. I mean, these are very concrete costs. And the truth is that the poorer you are, the harder you're going to be hit. You know, we keep saying we can't afford to do this, but poverty alleviation and addressing climate change are the same thing. The last kind of topic I wanted to touch on was youth. Um, and because we every election, we hear a lot of rumors that youth don't, care about the elections that they don't care to vote um but you know we all know that this is not true <laughs> um so and and on this podcast we've been talking a lot to uh some really really great local organizations that are doing amazing work around youth civic engagement um so to any youth who are listening right now uh mark what is your message to them what would what would what do you want them to know what I see as a professor working with people in the age group between 18 to 25 is that the biggest barrier to participation and uh, engagement is a feeling of apathy. And that feeling of apathy comes from looking out at the world, being aware of what the issues are and feeling completely overwhelmed, just not knowing what to do. Um, so, I would say that first of all, your individual actions matter. What you do interpersonally, the way you treat each other, the way you treat people that you come across day to day, it can be a radical act. 
it can be a very radical act because in the way that you treat each other, you are saying another world is possible in your interactions. Secondly, I would say that um, I'm really inspired by what a lot of young people are doing. Um, there's a, there is a lot of engagement and there's a lot of concern and older people aren't listening because they can't. They can't listen because they know what's at stake. You know, people like me, I'm 54, I'm gonna die in the next 20 to 30 years, right? I mean, it's, this isn't gonna, climate change isn't gonna affect me in the same way that it's going to affect my kids and their kids. But my kids know how it's gonna affect them and their kids. And that's a much, a much uh, more direct connection to what's going on. And that's why you might feel like you're being ignored. But you're being, if, if you're being ignored because your message is powerful, that's confirmation that you're saying something good. Yeah, and we were actually talking about this yesterday of if you're not turning heads and mm -hmm. causing an uproar, you're not doing something right. So that's a, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's like a great way to um, summarize everything and and leave on like kind of like a high note but I do have one quick question for you before mm -hmm. we go um, and we can keep it short um, and the question is uh, what is the local topic or issue um, in your writing or in your community that is important um, to you? Mm. Well I, I would say that uh, so I practice Buddhism and central to the practice of Buddhism is the practice of compassion towards everyone. And I would say that that is, that's where what everything comes down to for me is this appreciation of the suffering and the joys of others. And what I've been experiencing, and I realize this is just my experience, and I'm not making a, you know, a scientific statement about the state of humanity, but it seems to me that there is less compassion and less just general camaraderie among people. People are very divided and aggressive and competitive, and that will only serve to keep us where we are. The oppressive systems that you've been alluding to and that many uh, activists are engaged with, um, when those are expressed as outrage and anger, they're minimized, they're diminished. But when they're expressed through the power of compassion and love, they can't be ignored. I understand that people are angry. I'm angry too. But if you want people to listen to you, you need to engage them as fellow travelers. All right, let's end our episode here, uh, but definitely check out the other episodes in our election mini series where we talk to candidates from the NDP and Green Party. Um, and you can also check out our earlier episodes in this election miniseries, where we talk to 350 Canada, Green Pack, Apathy is Boring, and Engage Peel about climate change, civic engagement, and the elections. 
If you would like to connect with me, Rav, your co-host, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at Shade of Mitti or at shadeofmitti.ca. And you can connect with my amazing co-host Rahul on Instagram and Twitter at Sustain Saga. Thanks so much for listening.